Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Dana Grinberga, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success and share it with you so you can do the same. On today's episode, Dr. Sam Kurashi, former psychiatric resident, now a mind researcher, Instagrammer, and coach. Emotions are temporary visitors that we treat as permanent residents. They're trapped and they don't want to be trapped. They're here for a message to deliver it. The moment we receive it, things change. Healing your emotional wounds changes the tonality and the quality of the inner voice. There are a couple of beliefs that are limiting, like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's not true, but if you believe it, it would be. And if you believe it, then you're gonna spend the rest of your life trying to avoid just suppressing the urges, suppressing the identity of an alcoholic, instead of moving beyond the identity of the alcoholic, which you haven't, which you didn't have before you became one. So now if you're moving beyond that, why are you holding on to the identity while changing the behavior? That creates an inner conflict that you carry with you. So every day becomes an uphill battle. How do you do it in front of a screen, your videos, without people? Well, I think something that actually helps is obviously imagining a single person. But I think something I never really thought about was the fact that whenever I'm filming, I'm filming myself. So it's a selfie mode. When it's you see a selfie yourself. mode, yes. So, and I think that's really helpful to see a familiar face, first of all, puts you at ease. But I think the other thing is you end up, in a way, you are talking to yourself in the way that you want to be spoken to. And you are talking to yourself in the way that you'd like to learn to, t to basically talk to yourself if you have been harsh or hard on yourself. So it's an interesting, now thinking about it, I was actually retraining myself to connect with myself on a deeper level every single time I did it. And it helped me connect with myself it was a form of therapy, actually, if you think about it. I never really thought of it that way. But it makes it easier to communicate. You know how they say that the voice, your inner voice, the one that accompanies you 24-7, how important it is to actually be aware of what it is and then to make sure that it's positive and it's kind and it's loving? When you do those videos and when you film it with this kind of selfie mode and you learn to talk to yourself kindly... You learn to, I guess you retrain the inner voice mm. by the way you talk your, to yourself out loud, definitely. And the way you talk to others can also impact the inner voice. But obviously, there's something else linked to the inner voice. There is the concept of selves or parts. We have over 200 selves in our, in our psyche. And we tap into, we summon these selves at different situations, different scenarios. And usually we have about six at the top table that govern our lives that we don't even know exists. So we would have, let's say, an angry self or the critical self. The inner critic is one of the top six. The last thing you'd want is to have... Now, they serve a purpose, but the last thing you want is to have that self... At the helm. At the top table. But we don't want to banish them either. So what we'd want to do is create a balance between the two selves, because every self has an opposite. It's actually a hundred selves, 200 selves, but there are opposites. So if there's an angry self, there's a calm self. So it's about creating a balance between the two and picking the one that you want that serves you the most at the top table. 
So the inner, so that's another kind of conversation, definitely. Uh, but when it comes to emotions, healing your emotional wounds changes the tonality and the quality of the inner voice. Because if you no longer have the emotional wound, you're no longer angry, you're no longer resentful, you're no longer afraid. And if you're not afraid, then you'll communicate more authentically. Actually, healing the wounds helps you become more authentic. I remember mentioning that in my conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate two days ago. and Which was amazing, by the way. I tuned in. Thank you so much for that. It was a pleasure to have you. I'm, I'm honored that you were there. I just, I kept on telling him halfway because there were so many different topics we wanted to talk about. And one of them was trauma, obviously the first chapter of the book. But we started with disease. We moved on to different things. And when we got to authenticity versus attachment, I just felt strongly about staying there because there was so much to explore with that. And there's a lot about authenticity that is linked to mental and physical illness. If we are physically or mentally ill, it's hard to be authentic. And one of my mentors told me that underneath any physical or mental illness is a truth that hasn't been expressed, a truth that has been hidden, a truth that has been hidden by shame or by fear, a truth that has been suppressed. And that in and of itself needs to be explored in order for the physical illness for the mental illness to be resolved in and of itself too. It's there for a reason. And so that's where authenticity comes in. If you heal your emotional wound, it becomes a lot easier for you to behave more authentically, to believe what you truly want to believe, not what you've been forced to believe, not what you've been conditioned to believe. Everything about you will change. You will never be the same. In the same way the trauma changed you and you're no longer the person you were before the trauma, Healing the wound changes you, and you're no longer the person after the trauma. And that's, to me, liberating to know that you can shift who you are, the person you want to be, the person you were meant to be before the trauma. And you may even evolve to something even more powerful and beyond what you could have ever possibly imagined. But you need to remove that emotional thorn. How? Huh. The emotional thorn... That's an interesting one. I've been researching the mind for over 25 years. Breathing was an, a, you know, a focal point for me as well. After leaving psychiatry, I, my medical profession, I wanted to find a more effective way of helping people. And then I just focused on learning from different experts. And there was every expert provided me with a missing piece, a jigsaw puzzle piece of the jigsaw puzzle of the mind. And I've been exploring the mind in a very unique way, very different way that goes beyond academia with all the different experts. And then I found the missing piece that brought everything together. And that was the idea of emotions specific because people look at emotions as temporary, fleeting, even in neuroscience. Like it's just something that, you know, you feel and it passes, just sit with it. It passes. And it's not just in neuroscience, but it's just something that you just sit with when it comes, it will go. It's something that never goes away, but yet it's something temporary, which is kind of conflicting when I think about it. They teach us in general that an emotion is fleeting, but an emotion comes and goes. So you're teaching me to manage something that is temporary, but also something that will keep coming. And this is one of the things that the issues that I have in th with therapy specifically, it helps. Everything can help in the, in the right context. But when it comes to therapy specifically, the focus is on shifting the narrative, changing, changing our relationship to the story, which is important, 
understanding and analyzing why something happened, focusing on the event, focusing on the story, shifting the narrative, finding coping mechanisms. Let me put it in a different way. These are different elements, but let me put it in a different way. Imagine if you have the thorn in the sole of your foot. In therapy, it's about understanding why that thorn happened. Why was it pierced in, your, in the sole of your foot? What can we do to manage its existence so that it doesn't get pressed? It's there. We just want to protect it so it doesn't get pressed. So let's find all the triggers, the things, the people, the situations that actually lead to that. And then the third is let's teach you coping mechanisms in case it does get pressed. And then, you know, you can quickly recover from the pain that will happen. That is inevitable because we can manage the triggers, but we can't guarantee eliminating it. And if something happens, you're going to feel what you're feeling. Let's teach you how to quickly calm down. All these ways of looking at it are extremely useful is it doesn't solve the problem because it's about managing the situation. It's symptomatic treatment. Doesn't really solve the problem. The problem is that there is a thorn pierced in the sole of your foot. The solution is to focus on that thorn, not on why it's there, not on how to cover it and protect it, not on how to manage the pain when you feel it, but on removing it. And once you remove that thorn, you no longer need to worry about coping mechanisms. You don't longer need to worry about managing that thorn because it's no longer there or why it's there. Now, there's value in all that. Definitely, by knowing why something is there, you can make sure to make sure you can make sure to minimize the chances of it happening again by understanding the reason why. And by understanding the triggers, minimizing the triggers minimizes the pain by minimizing it being pressed, which makes sense. You're managing it, and that's, that's a good step. It's better than doing nothing, but it's temporary, it's symptomatic. So what tools have you found over the years of your research that actually allow us to remove these thorns well, that, permanently? Permanently. That ties into the people that I've, the mentors, and putting things together. But also, there's one main mentor, called Richard D. Mott, who I've come across. And I was fascinated with what he was doing. And then I basically reached out to him. We connected and we started working. I wanted to learn his techniques. As I was learning his techniques, he was teaching me about emotions and the way to learn it is to actually experiencing it, is to experience it. And I realized that there's so much that I didn't even know I was carrying. The problem is not just the traumas that you know of, but the ones you don't even know that you have been carrying all your life. How to unearth that because they've been buried. And one of the lessons that I've learned from him is emotions that get buried alive never die. And from there, I started thinking of it differently. Well, people talk about time heals all wounds, but based on my experience, based on what I've learned, based on what I've done, helping other people, Time doesn't heal all wounds. It just buries them, which makes them harder to be released. But we can always unearth them. We can always allow them to resurface. The problem is people focus on detaching from the emotions. And when you detach from the emotions, you feel better. Feeling better creates the illusion that you're healed. It doesn't mean that you're healed. You just buried it deep enough for you to feel detached enough that you no longer feel it. So the solution, I guess, Thinking about not stepping on these thorns in the first place is just allowing yourself to actually feel the emotions. That's the first step. 
acknowledge their existence, give yourself permission to feel them. And I think permission is a very important thing in self-development. If people look at anyone that goes to seminars, any seminar, I've been to several Tony Robbins seminars, different seminars of different speakers, and I've been in the self-development world learning from different experts since I was 20. So I, I, I've been fascinated by that world, but it lacks something. They focus on beliefs and behaviors, change your beliefs to change your behaviors, change your behaviors to change your beliefs. The missing piece was emotions. When you look at people struggling with addiction, for example, they're focusing on addiction. There are a couple of beliefs that are limiting, like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's not true, but if you believe it, it would be. And if you believe it, then you're gonna spend the rest of your life trying to avoid the urge, just suppressing the urges, suppressing the identity of an alcoholic. Instead of moving beyond the identity of the alcoholic, which you haven't, which you didn't have before you became one. So now if you're moving beyond that, why are you holding on to the identity while changing the behavior? That creates an inner conflict that you carry with you. So every day becomes an uphill battle. It gets easier, but there's still that struggle because you still carry the identity and you don't have to. What's with this obsession of ours to put labels on everything? and identify so strongly with things. Identity has, it's a double-edged sword because identity and labeling are not necessarily the same thing. You can label something to identify with, or you can label something to have more power over it. So, but sometimes when you label some th someone or label yourself, you limit yourself. I'm a recovering alcoholic, that's limiting. It's different than a recovered alcoholic, or I'm no longer an alcoholic. That's what I used to do. Shifting it to action or behavior instead of identity makes it easier to move beyond it. It's a behavior I used to engage in, and then I stopped. It's no longer who I am. It's no longer what I do. Now, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to talk about the power of language, even in this, what you're saying right now. And it's also something that I see recurring in your content, and that's something that I think about very often. Even the words that we use amongst each other, same words mean different things to different people. So if I say addiction, it might mean something else to you and something different to me. So it seems that we're communicating already on the basis of not understanding each other, let alone if you build everything else on that. What would you say are some good advice that you could give on how to communicate better? with each other. In terms of language. Yeah. I was um, invited to be on a podcast and it was, it was a podcast um, that was hosted by one of my dear friends, Chris Hadnagy, who's the top social engineer in the world. Social engineering was a fascinating, was one of the puzzles. And I, we, can, we can get to that at some point. He, as we were talking, I was explaining my thoughts on language and he said, you need to write a book on this. And I started writing a book and I I don't have a title for it, but the concept's really about psycholinguistics, using language to move people emotionally and to move yourself emotionally in a, in a very specific way. And I know there are a lot of books that are out there, clean language, there are, in NLP they talk about language a lot, but I wanted to approach it in a slightly different way. So different types of language patterns or different types of language. So. In terms of advice, let me get to emotions for a second because this is a big topic in and of itself. When we label an emotion, we make it tangible. If you want to control something or if you want to 
engage with something. It needs to be tangible. So we need to render the intangible tangible. If you have an invisible enemy, you cannot fight an enemy you cannot see or hear or touch. And I think one of the problems with emotions, and I don't consider it an enemy at all, but emotions cannot be properly engaged with. And the reason why it's hard for people to deal with emotions, and they, it's a hit and miss for a lot of people, and they try so many different things, is because emotions can't be seen or heard or touched. So there's a sense of helplessness when we feel. It's easy if something is hurting you from the outside, if an insect is biting you, you just grab it and throw it away. You're done. If something, if you step on something, you just remove it. But if it's something from within, you can't put your hand inside your body to remove it. Sometimes it really feels like would yeah. be great. Which also explains self-harming. A person's trying to pierce, is either trying to distract themselves from the pain, or they're trying to dig out the pain in that part. There's more to it, of course, but that's an example. So making it tangible allows us to create common ground with the unconscious mind and communicate with the unconscious mind to release what's there. What the unconscious mind is pounding. Is, it's like a messenger on, at our doorstep, pounding on the door, just knocking on the door over and over and over. And we're not listening because we don't know how to listen and we don't know how to deal with it. So we tend to bury the emotions in the ocean of our minds. And every time, and we're hoping that we can feel better, but the problem is that it can surface and it does surface when we don't want it, when we least expect it, by being triggered by something we remember or something we see or hear or what someone says to us. So it doesn't really help to bury it. You create pockets of illusion of peace, really, more than peace, but it keeps coming up. How about taking charge by going deep yourself and unearthing everything that's there that wants to leave you in the first place, that never meant to stay. to stay, didn't want to stay. Emotions are temporary visitors that we treat as permanent residents. They're, they're trapped and they don't want to be trapped. They're here for a message to deliver it. The moment we receive it, things change. In fact, if you look at all healing in mental and physical, for, you know, in terms of mental, mental and physical illness, all healing begins and can actually happen instantly through becoming consciously aware of the unconscious message. That in and of itself, awareness in and of itself can be healing, can be therapeutic. Hey guys, I have a very exciting announcement to make. I've started working with my very first sponsor and it's none other than, drumroll, Momo Kombucha. Our own London-based, locally produced, healthy and delicious kombucha that I've been a fan of since I first tried it. For those of you who know me, you know that I'm obsessed with my health, but at the same time, I'm a devout foodie, and nothing will make me renounce tasty food and drink. Unfortunately, most delicious drinks are full of sugar and other additives that are not good for your health. This is why I love Momo so much. It's delicious, so it curbs my cravings for snacks, and healthy, as it contains loads of probiotics that are great for your gut. If you'd like to try it yourself, use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% off of your first order. And these awarenesses can arise in therapy, they can arise into different types of healing, they can arise in a conversation with someone, in changing the, the realization that, oh my God, my, my relationship is toxic. And just by leaving that relationship, everything changes. 
suddenly the illness that they had disappears for no reason. It doesn't make sense. It feels like it's magical. No, the way you lived your life allowed your nervous system to trigger gene activity in a way that results in your certain in your condition. That's not to say that it's your fault, because most of us were never taught this. But once you become aware, you make that connection. Now back to labeling. One of the most potent ways to heal emotionally and to process emotions is to express them in writing or verbally and focus on the emotions. One of the most profound lessons was the realization or the, the understanding or the arrival at the understanding that why we feel doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. How we feel is everything. So if you're in therapy and you're just focusing on why you feel, you're focusing on emotional analysis. There are elements, and we can get to that, as to why that would work, could work, but it can take a long time. It can be a hit and miss. But the most potent thing that you can do is focus on the emotions themselves. What's the first thing that comes up when you think of something that bothers you in your life? An emotion, probably. Feeling annoyed. Feeling annoyed. But when you feel, let's say, annoyed, there's something, let's say there's something in your life right now that's bothering you, hypothetically. Hypothetically or realistically, you don't even mm -hmm. have to share it. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about it, what are you going to talk about? Probably circumstances surrounding it. Maybe the event. Yeah. Maybe who's involved. Maybe what you want. Maybe what you want to do to the person or say to the person. Right? Hypothetically. Yeah. All, all practical things. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. How much time do you spend focusing on how you feel? Probably not enough. And if you focus on how you feel, how many emotions do you think will come up? The first thing that usually people say, if I ask someone, okay, so how do you feel about that? I feel angry. Usually people stop there. If you ask them the question that no one else asks, most people don't ask, you would be surprised by the answer. Which is? What else? Hmm. And immediately by asking the person what else, they start to think angry. Sad, disappointed. There is no yeah. way that you feel a single emotion linked to a single event. You're going to feel a cluster of emotions. None of them will be expressed, either because you never even get to that one emotion, because you're focused on everything else that you just mentioned, or you focus on a single emotion and that's it. You place it as, that's it. That's, that's the umbrella emotion that I feel. That's it. When I take people through the processing, it's interesting what they would go through initially in terms of resistance. So for example, they would want to trivialize the emotion. I feel a bit sad. No, no. You either feel it or you don't. The idea is to own it. A hundred percent unconditional acceptance of the emotion is key. Mm. And I, I'm sure if you've, you, you have heard unconditional acceptance several times in the videos that I posted recently and in terms of the, the live with, IG live with Dr. Yeah. Gabor Mate. Unconditional acceptance is a huge thing for me. And it's, it ties into everything else. And we can get to unconditional acceptance. We could talk about that. But when it comes to emotions, unconditional acceptance is key. Don't trivialize it. Express it as it is. I feel sad. Full stop. Or I can feel sad. And it's okay. You don't even have to say it's okay. Really? Yeah. But there's the feeling, the understanding that it is okay. You don't need to feel any sort of shame or guilt about feeling it. It is fine. It's fine. But here's what's interesting. When you're sitting with someone and they say, I feel sad and you say nothing, or you say what else, they have just experienced something they probably have never experienced in their life, and let me tell you why. Because when they say, I feel sad, and you don't say anything, or you say what else, 
and they say, I feel angry. And you say, what else? And they say, I feel resentment. What you're doing is you're creating an unconditional acceptance space for them that they have never had in their life where they are talking about their feelings. Why? Because people that are in this relationship with them, that are in their lives, in a moment like that, let's flip this. Someone you care about tells you, I feel sad. What's the first thing that you'd say? I want to help them. <laughs> so what's the first thing that you'd say? Why? What did I say about why and how? Why we feel doesn't matter. How we feel is everything. So now by the why, you're distracting them from unintentionally, from the core of the problem that can dissolve it. And we don't do this willingly. We don't do this intentionally. We're doing it well-intentioned. We want to help people. And then there's also this tendency of wanting to fix things immediately for people, which is even further away from letting them just feel those emotions. Yes. But these are potentially well-intentioned behaviors. Let's explore the negative, the unhealthy behaviors. What would be harmful to the person that is telling you, I feel sad? What would be a harmful behavior coming out of you to them? Apparently everything else except for me holding space for them. <laughs> Which involves, for example, telling them you don't deserve to be sad. How dare you feel sad? I'm feeling sad. I know what, what feeling sad is. Don't exaggerate this. Justify why you feel sad. Tell me why you feel sad. Like you need to convince me that you feel sad. Think of that. How many people in the world do that? Sometimes they do it because they don't, they, they hold resentment towards the person, but sometimes they do it because they want it trivialize sadness. Oh, come on. It's, you don't feel that bad. It's yeah, that's not that their bad. way of coping with it. Yeah. That's their way of coping with it. But what they're doing is they're focusing on trivializing how someone feels. What they're really saying without even wanting to is what you feel doesn't matter. How you feel doesn't matter. How you feel isn't as bad as how I feel or as bad as how someone else feels because you get to compare it, compare. How you feel is is unworthy of spending time with it, on it. And what does the person learn? To be afraid of expressing how they feel? Because every time they express it, they feel worse because of the way people treat them when they feel and they express it and they feel ashamed. Shouldn't feel this. And so there's, there's a space, there's a place to teach people how to engage with people that are feeling and there is a place to teach people how to feel how to express how they feel to be more accurate. And so when it comes to something like that, one thing is I hold that space. They've never had to defend or justify or explain how they feel to me. They've never had to, they get into it. They get into it for two reasons, because they want to justify it to me or they want to explain it to themselves because they're always used to why. So they say, I feel resent, resentful because and I'm like, hold on, let's just focus on the emotion. How do you feel? You don't have to justify. You don't have to justify. You don't have to trivialize. The other thing is they want to direct it towards someone. And that's something I found. I would ask the person how they feel. And they say, I feel resentment towards myself and towards the person. It doesn't matter how you feel, why you feel. It doesn't matter how much you feel it. It doesn't matter who you feel it towards. What matters is that you feel it. Let's focus on that. It takes a bit of time for people to get used to the unapologetic expression of the truth about how they feel openly 
without fearing, without feeling fear or shame about doing that. And suddenly it becomes a habit and becomes easier to release what piles up now. And it's a way to chip away at the back catalog that we've been carrying. If I were to mention, if I were to give one suggestion for people is getting comfortable expressing the truth about how they feel. Because uh, my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Um, Richard, he's not Dr. No, but Richard Demote, incredible human, was saying that there are three, three problems that we have that are causing and damaging our mental health, contaminating it. One, suppressing the truth about how we feel. Two, saying yes when we want to say no. And three, not enforcing our boundaries. Amen. <laughs> These are the three that if we work on, everything changes. The most important one that actually enables us to say no when we want to say no, to, to, to work on, my, on our boundaries, is the truth about how we feel. And that's the scariest because to us, we think that if, I, if we release how we feel, we don't know what's going to happen. If we don't want it to consume us. We don't want to hurt other people. We, we, we don't want to become a person that is a burden for other people or someone that can be terrifying to other people. We don't want to unleash what's within us. You are not unleashing. When you release what you believe to be a demon, the moment it leaves your body, it melts. The power that the emotions have are because they're still there. A lot of people mm. think, you know what, when it comes to journaling, that's another one. When it comes to journaling, you, when you work on, I know we, we really <laughs> moved away from language, but I'll, I, I promise I'll get back to language. But the point I was trying to make is that labeling captures the emotions in a tangible form that allows it to be dissolved, allows us to engage with it, allows it to be released. In journaling, when you write your thoughts, you feel better if it's negative thoughts, whatever comes out. But you feel better if you do it in the morning, but you got to do it every day. The emotions are like the sack for the poison and the thoughts are the poison. You're emptying the sack every morning, but you don't need to empty the sack every morning. If you, you don't need to empty the sack if you get rid of the sack. It's not the thoughts that's the problem. It's the emotional charge linked to the thoughts. And these negative thoughts cannot come on their own without emotional pain, emotional wounds that you have. The emotions give birth to the thoughts, and then the thoughts feed the emotions, but it's the emotional wounds that are giving birth to these negative thoughts. Anxious thoughts come from anxiety. You can't have anxious thoughts if you feel peaceful. You can't have angry thoughts if you're peaceful, if you're calm, if you're joyful. The emotional state dictates the thoughts, but primarily it's the emotional wounds that are dictating the thoughts. Handle the emotions the thoughts change, the quality of the thoughts change, your beliefs change, your behavior changes. You're going to behave differently, think differently, look at yourself differently, look at the world differently if you have a thorn in the sole of your foot than you would if you don't. If you're in pain, are you going to communicate authentically? Are you going to communicate in the best way possible? No, because you're in pain. So you're going to see yourself differently, see the world differently, you're going to believe, you're going to have different beliefs, different behaviors, because it's governed by the emotional pain that has not been addressed. You resolve that, everything I just mentioned changed. Your perception of yourself in the world and others change. Your belief, your beliefs change. 
your behaviors change. And the thing to clarify, just to mention the tree metaphor, if you were to imagine behaviors are a branch, beliefs are the trunk, and emotions are the roots, in self-development, the focus is on chopping the branch or chopping the trunk. The problem is the roots are there and it will grow back. The reason why behavior is hard to change, the reason why when we change our behavior, it is an uphill battle. Either the change is temporary or if it's permanent, it's a constant struggle because we're fighting against an emotional wound that gave birth to these beliefs and behaviors as an adaptation. Mm -hmm. You get rid of the emotional wound, you no longer have a need for a belief and a behavior for that adaptation to begin with, to happen in the first place, or to continue. So with thoughts and emotions, just a one final distinction before we get back to language. Thoughts are basically fed when we release them. So you give a thought a power when you release it into the world, when you write it down, when you say it out loud, a negative thought, a horrible thought, you now make it more tangible. And that's what gives it more power. An emotion is the opposite. When you feel it and you express it, by expressing it, you take away the power. You feed it by suppressing it. You feed, thought, you feed thoughts by expressing it. And we need to focus on more emotional journaling rather than thought journaling. We no longer need to journal thoughts if we... We can journal thoughts, obviously, because there are different types of journaling. But journaling negative thoughts are no longer necessary or would be required to do it as frequently, at least, if you work on the emotional journaling of your emotions. And by journaling the emotions, you capture the emotional life themes that keep coming up in your life. Because there are a cluster of emotions that might actually keep repeating in your life over and over and over. So this is a, to kind of flesh that out. But to get back to language, with language, I would say um, a simple way of communicating more effectively is using language of possibility, language of inclusion, language of detachment. If we look at these three categories, it would make it a lot easier to look at it. So language of possibility, you can basically say, it's different if you tell someone do this, or telling someone you can do this, for example. Because when you say you can, you're reminding them of the possibility that they, uh, that they have the ability to do it and that they have choice, and you're allowing them the choice of taking responsibility. But when you say do this, and there is a place for language of certainty, I just want to be clear, but the more we use language of possibility, the less threatened people will be. Because if it's certainty, that you're using, then there is no way, there's no option for them but to either agree with you or disagree with you. They agree, you're their ally. If they disagree, you're their enemy. And so it doesn't give them choice. But when you use language of possibility, like can or what if or imagine, that's the other aspect. You open up possibilities for them and it eliminates the limitation and the limitation can happen simply from just being certain. With certainty can come rigidity. So with, with the language that I use, I try my best to always use language of possibility whenever we communicate. Because whenever I communicate with anybody, language of possibility gives them permission to say no. Language of possibility gives them choice. When you take away choice from someone, you are automatically making them feel threatened. And if they feel threatened, they're not going to listen to what you want to say. We, you miss the mark. 
what's the point of sharing your advice or the opinion or whatever you want to share if you know that the way you're going to share it is not going to help the other person receive it? Mm. What's the point? Advice is a different conversation, different beast. I actually have a list of uh, reels that I'm thinking of planning to post on Instagram about advice. I'll get to that in a minute, but just to continue the language, imagination and hypotheticals are very powerful. So in self-development, they use that. In NLP, they use that. Tony Robbins is very, very well known to use that. If I ask you to do something and you tell me that you can't, language of possibility would follow an example would be the following sentence or question. So let's say I asked you to move the mic mm. and you say, I can't. The language of possibility here would be, what if you could? How would you do it? Well, if I could move the mic, this is what I would do. <laughs> well, guess what? It was an indirect way of giving the person choice. But there's something else there that's happening. You're also giving them the opportunity to step into a hypothetical. With a hypothetical, which is using the language of possibility, it makes it so much easier for someone because it feels, if it's a hypothetical, there are no absolutes, there are no expectations, there are no judgments awaiting me, there is no failure, or it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes. It's a hypothetical, it's not real. And suddenly you give them permission to play with it. It's very playful, which also activates, releases uh, encephalins from the periaqueductal gray, which is a part of the midbrain that is very important to relax us. And this is a playful way of doing it. Play in general is a big conversation, but this is a simple thing that you can do for play. You get the person to, to play simply by just asking them a hypothetical. Imagine, in rehearsal, in other words, people that look at, at life as a performance can be very, very stressed. Mm. I look at life as a rehearsal for a performance rather than a performance. And if it's a rehearsal, that means I can play and try different things. I don't have to make, I can make mistakes and it's okay. If you look at life as a rehearsal, it changes everything. The other thing is if you look at life as an improv, here's the difference. If it's a performance, there's judgment. Stakes are high. Stakes are high. If it's a rehearsal, it's okay to make mistakes. If it's improv, there are no mistakes. Place for magic. There are no mistakes. <laughs> Imagine living with the mindset that there are no mistakes, which technically, if we think about it, on some level, there are no mistakes. Whatever happens can happen for a reason. Whatever happens, anything can be a teaching moment. Anything can be an inspiring moment. Anything that comes across can that comes across or crosses your path can be a fuel. Obstacles can be fuel rather than a barrier that just, you can turn obstacles into highways by the way you look at it. So, which is all about perception, which is such a big topic. Which is such a big topic, but here's the thing. Reframing is extremely powerful. It's a great step, but if you don't focus on the emotional wounds that created the negative reframe, shifting it to a positive reframe is a bit incongruent. Mm. And you're going to try really hard to keep it just like a behavior that you want to change, that you want to have in your life. The negative behavior was an extension of the negative emotion. Now you shifted it to a positive behavior while keeping the negative emotion that gave birth to the negative behavior. So you're going to fight to keep the positive behavior. You don't have to if you release the negative emotion. Actually, 
it becomes a lot easier to change the belief, to change the behavior, to change your perception, to, to reframe things when the negative emotion, when the emotional wound is gone. And in most cases, by releasing, by dissolving the emotions and healing the emotional wound, the belief and behavior and the reframe happens all by itself. Change happens all by itself. So in a way, it's the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance to me is any path using the lens of acceptance. The th when you say the path of least resistance, I'm guessing you're looking at the path itself and the potential block in front of us. I think about that phrase often. Okay. It just circulates in my mind, if you will. And I intuitively understand by it that we often go through life trying to enforce our visions of what we would like to happen, how we would like it to happen. And we're just so focused on that. Whereas if we let go a little bit and tapped into our intuition and just let things flow, chances are results could be better with less stress. Absolutely. That's my feeling around that. We don't need tension. Tension can serve us in certain scenarios. But the, the problem really, I mean, one way to summarize physical mental illness, it's an over-exaggeration. It's an oversimplification, not an exaggeration. But what I would say is physical and mental illness is linked to chronic tension. Chronic tension comes from chronic resistance. Chronic resistance comes from many things, but, but it's mainly resisting the truth. Mainly the truth about how you feel, but also the truth about what you want, but also the truth about what you fear, and also the truth about what you need, and the truth about the fact that you're not, being, you're not having those needs met and the truth about who you are. If you're suppressing these truths, then you are constantly in resistance. Constant resistance, mental and physical, they feed each other, creates chronic tension. In terms of exercise, that's resistance, but there's a criteria for what makes resistance healthy and what makes it unhealthy. Because with resistance, if it's acute, if it's short-lived, if it's intentional, if it's selective, it's fine, because you're doing it for a certain reason. I'm creating tension in my body when I'm working out in order for me to, to strengthen my muscles. That's fine. Here's what's interesting. Just to kind of, you know, clarify the idea of acute and chronic. What happens if a person stays in chronic tension while in chronic resistance, i.e. chronic, chronic tension, while they're working out? You're constantly tensing. You're constantly holding these dumbbells. 24 hours. I don't think you can, but say instead of holding it and releasing, holding and releasing, and that's another thing, the rhythmicity of resistance acceptance allows the resistance to work for us in certain scenarios and exercise is an example. But imagine if you hold. Now, I'm a fan of static contraction. It's, I mean, when I used to work out, I would work out once a week for about 10 minutes and my muscles would explode because of static contraction which is doing a 35-second push-up over and over and over. And it's 10 seconds on the way down, 10 seconds holding it, 10 seconds on the way up. So it's, and then five seconds of release, and then you go back. It's a 35-second push-up. Intense. That's chronic tension. It's a bit longer, but it ends with a release. But imagine if you hold, let's say, dumbbells in a position for 30 minutes. What do you think would happen to the muscles that you are trying to use resistance to grow? Not what I want. <laughs> it's going to 
damage the muscles. It may tear the muscles. It may, it will definitely prevent the growth. That's the power of chronic tension in hurting us. And we carry a lot of tension. So the key here is to learn to utilize, to see things through the lens of acceptance, because the path of least, of least resistance, there's two sides to that. There's the resistance of what's in front of you, but really it's the resistance you feel towards what's in front of you. It's not really what's in front of you. It's how you are resisting what's in front of you more. That's, that's the governing. That's the thing that you have power over. And if you look at things with unconditional acceptance, you can permeate, you can find ways, you can move beyond. And I mention this, uh, I mention this a lot. I love Spain. I love Italy. Italy is one of my favorite countries in the world. I've been there a lot. But let's say, for metaphor, as a metaphor, I'm in Spain and I want to go to Italy. But I'm in, I'm in denial that I'm in Spain. <laughs> I'm resisting the reality that I'm in Spain. How can I ever get to Italy? Because I'm not identifying where I am on the map. I know where I want to go, Italy. But I'm not identifying or I'm, I'm in denial of the identification of my location on the map. How can I ever get to where I want to go? And this kind of ties into goal setting as well. You can't get to where you want to go if you don't know where you want to go, or if you know where you want to go and you don't know where you are. You need both. You need both to get to where you want to go. Yeah. So having the lens of unconditional acceptance is key. Being unconditionally accepting of the existence of the reality and not the persistence of it. A lot of people look at acceptance as, I remember, you know, we did the clubhouse uh, with Laura and we, you know, after that I started doing clubhouse sessions with my friend Catherine and it was the psychology of, the psychology of, and we tapped into different topics and one of them was the psychology of, of acceptance. This ties into labeling as well and definitions and identity because what I started doing on Instagram is I started using I started asking people, so if the topic was acceptance, I would ask people, what is the opposite of acceptance? And what's interesting is when you ask people the opposite of something, they're actually indirectly giving you their definition of that thing. But you're doing it indirectly and you're getting a deeper answer because you're, you're learning their relationship to that word by how they relate the opposite to it. Mm. And it gave me massive insight which I used in the clubhouse sessions. So it's a way of finding the definition. It's also a way of redefining what something is. Mm. And I was clarifying acceptance is not surrender. Acceptance is not um, compliance. It's not agreement. Acceptance is acknowledging the existence. What are you acknowledging the existence of? When you say, I feel angry, I'm acknowledging the existence of the emotion, which most people don't for many reasons that we discussed and more. It's about acknowledging the existence of the reality you're in. It's not about saying I'm happy where I'm at. No, you're not. That's fine. You want to move towards that. You cannot move towards that if you don't accept where you are. You can't move towards happiness if you don't admit that you're not happy which is a topic that I normally don't talk about, but I'll cover in a moment, which is the toxicity of positivity. I'm not a fan of positive thinking, and I'll explain why. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a video that I've been dabbling, 
that I've been holding back that I haven't released yet, but I'm probably going to be releasing it soon called The Toxicity of Positivity. It's a bit controversial, but I think it's important. It's extremely important. It has been recorded for years. It's there, but I always kept it aside. I was like, this is, yeah, it's a very kind of loaded, inf- it's, it's, it, it might trigger people, but it wasn't, it's not meant for that, but it's, it's to raise awareness mm-hmm. on the idea. And most probably people by now during this period of time, especially with everything I've been sharing on Instagram, they'll be like, yeah, I get it. I'm very curious. Can we delve into that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to remember what I was wrapping up before we did. So yeah. So acceptance, the acknowledge yes. of existence, unconditional acceptance is about unconditionally acknowledging the existence of a reality, the existence of how you feel the existence of your emotions, your needs, your truth, the existence of your truth. A lot of people suppress that truth. They don't want to admit that they feel ashamed of something they have done. They don't even want to say it out loud. And sometimes when someone says, I feel ashamed, the emotional shift that happens, it's like something happens physiologically because they've never said it out loud that they're ashamed of that moment or what they've done, or they're afraid. They've never admitted it to themselves out loud let alone in front of someone else. And that's extremely powerful. I always marvel upon the fact of how many people don't feel comfortable being alone. Just spending time home, alone, without TV, without the phone. It seems like it's the scariest thing that actually exists in the world. That's how far they go to avoid that. Whatever you do, I always say this to myself, whatever you do, just don't lie to yourself. There is no escape from you. You are with you <laughs> always. So the day you're born to the day you die, just be honest with yourself. If it takes journaling, if it takes meditation, if it takes going to the nature for a retreat of one weekend yeah. or just having 10 minutes for yourself, whatever that ritual is, to start those conversations with yourself and to allow that space to be with yourself, I think that's really important. I agree. And I just want to add something in terms of journaling, just to be clear. Journaling is very, very healthy. What I'm proposing is a more potent way of using journaling so that you no longer need to journal those thoughts and journal something else. But mm-hmm. journaling is a, is a form of expressing the truth about how you, how you, you know, you're, what you've been through, what the experience is. And even if you're ranting, you still have the emotional wound, which is why you're ranting expressing the truth, your truth in that moment, it's still truth. It can be a bit contaminated, but it's still your truth. If you say, I resent that person, I hate that person for what they did. You're saying that because you feel that truth. And just to tie that, people don't express the emotions because they don't want to make it real. Yeah. You're already feeling it. It is real. <laughs> Let it out, move on and live your life. But we need to know how to do that. So with journaling, it's, it's very healthy to express that truth. But the reason why I say it's contaminated, and now I'm keeping track of a couple of threads here, <laughs> the, the language and then the toxicity of positivity and alone time, they're very important points. I'm juggling them in my head and I'm saying them out loud. So yeah, great. <laughs> great. So you could write them. Um, so with, let me pause now for a moment just Absolutely. To, to reconnect. So the last thing I was saying was about journaling and about the truth. Yes. In terms of Thank you. In terms of, side note, I always say thank you when my mind reminds me. Mm. It makes it a lot easier to remind me every single time. 
and I haven't had an I haven't had an experience where I forgot for a moment and didn't have it surface in a few seconds later, a few seconds later, for years, I think probably three, four years, simply because every time I do remember, I love that. I say thank you to my unconscious mind. In terms of the the journaling and the contamination, what do I mean by contamination? The contamination of your truth, let's say you're feeling angry at someone, towards someone for something they said or did. You've been holding it or it just happened. You let it go for a day, then you had the confrontation, you spoke with them. When you do that, you have that conversation with them. Whatever you're saying is your truth, but it can be contaminated and it may not be an actual pure, clean truth statement. An example, if I am talking to someone, I say, you made me feel that's not true. That's not a truth statement. But when you feel emotional, that's what you want to say. But it's not true. The truth is no one can make you feel anything. All they're doing when they're saying and doing whatever they're doing is they're connecting you to a wound you already have. They've connected you by force without them even knowing. They've allowed you access to a wound that you've been burying. So you resent them for that. And so now you're basically looking at them in that way, but on a conscious level. What's really happening is you, they just connected you with something you need to work on. Actually, thanks to them, not to give them credit, but for you to think, thanks to the person in front of me, I now am aware of something that needs work that I need to focus on. Absolutely. And this immediately reminds me of another thing that I often think about, which is personal responsibility. Exactly like you said, whatever external factors influence us, how we react to them is 100% our responsibility and up to us. And it gives the power, it gives us freedom as well, right? And this, this power to understand this, that it is solely up to us. In relationships, so often people are like, you did this to me, you did that to me, you said this and that then triggered this. But yes. I think when you arrive to that stage where you understand that it is up to you and the people around you are just teachers that are there to help you overcome what's inside of you, then you will thank them <laughs> instead of just blaming them or hating them or whatever else. Speaking of a truth statement, one of the most interesting statements that I learned from Richard was a form of apology. Telling someone, I apologize for misleading you into letting you know that what you just said was acceptable. And it's such a way to kind of shift the way the person receives it because what's happening is the person is receiving an apology so the guard is down but you're enforcing your boundaries through apologizing for not clarifying the boundaries which really puts the person at ease and that was so powerful linguistically in and can of you itself. repeat that please i apologize for misleading you into believing that what you just said to me was acceptable <laughs> it's not meant to it's not meant to be an attack you're telling the person that it's not acceptable, but look at the way it's been presented. It starts with an apology. Yeah. It's very powerful. Now, doesn't that, that does a tiny bit remind me of that, I'm sorry you feel this way. This circulates online. Well, oh. I'm sorry you feel this way is interesting. <laughs> well, I, I can see why you'd see that, but I'm sorry you feel this way is, because there's the flip side. We need to own up to our mistakes because we can say things that can be hurtful to others. And I want to highlight this 
telling someone that no one can make you feel something. It's about what they've connected you with. It's about allowing you to focus on how to resolve the issue within you because that trigger is not going to go away and you can cut that person out of your life. Someone else will come and press that button. It's about freeing you. It's not about enabling them. It's not about victim blaming. I want to be clear. This is not about victim blaming. It's not about giving people unconditional permission to say and do whatever they want to say and do. We are, and you talked about responsibility, and to me responsibility, claiming responsibility or, or allowing ourselves to step into responsibility is reminding ourselves that we have the ability to have a choice. It's empowering. It's, it gives us certainty. It gives us freedom. It's not a burden. It's exciting. If it's my fault, there's nothing I can do about it. If I'm responsible, that doesn't mean that I'm responsible for the creation. It can mean that I'm responsible for the creation. It can mean that I'm partly responsible for the creation. But sometimes in certain situations, I wasn't responsible at all. But I am responsible for, for maintaining the pain. Mm -hmm. I'm responsible for getting rid of it. Now, it's, I'm taking responsibility. I'm taking charge right now to make sure that I move beyond this. It's empowering. It's not meant to be a burden. And so let me clarify something here. We are not responsible for the behaviors of others. We are responsible for how we feel about the behaviors of others. We are responsible for enforcing our boundaries with others. And we are responsible for whether or not we act upon our emotions. And boundaries. Boundaries. And it's important not to act upon our emotions, of course. Mm. Absolutely important. Acting upon your emotions. There are, there are seven things that I believe we cannot control. And a lot of people focus on trying to control the uncontrollable. And they wonder why they remain stressed. They wonder why they remain resistant because they're trying to resist something instead of accepting the reality that you cannot control these things. And they're remaining in, they're living in frustration because they're trying to control something they can't. We can't control time. We can't control people. We can't control emotions. We can't control the past. We can't control the future. We can't control outcome and we can't control nature. And a lot of people are constantly trying to do the seven. We may not be able to control time, but we can control the way we conduct ourselves within time. We may not be able to control people, but we can control the way we communicate with people. We can control the way we enforce our boundaries and communicate the boundaries. We can control our need to act upon our emotions, which ties into emotions. We may not be able to control our emotions, but we can control whether or not we act upon them. And we have complete control over releasing them as long as we know how. Because if we don't know how, then we wouldn't be able to do it. The past and the future, same thing. You can't control the future. You can't control the past. But as Dr. Gabor beautifully mentioned it in his book, trauma is not something that basically happens to you. It's something that happens inside you. And here's the empowering part. If it happened in the past, then the only way to eliminate it is to go back in the past and change that. But if it's something that happened inside of you because, as a result of what happened in the past, then you've been carrying this with you the entire time. You're in luck. You can actually work on this and get rid of it. You don't have to fantasize about going back in time. You have the, the problem within you that you can resolve. You have the emotions within you that you can dissolve and release. You have the wound that you can heal. It's with you. It's, it's here. It's not in an ethereal world that is impossible to reach. And that's the point. We need to focus on the uncontrollables. Focus on what you can control. Focus on what 
you can control about the uncontrollables. Mm. And if you look at that, everything I just mentioned is linked to self. The thing we have absolute control over is our decisions, our actions, our habits in terms of what, how we breathe, the way we breathe, what we put in our bodies, the way we move, the pictures we have in our, our minds. We can change these pictures, the words we use, the way we use them, and so forth. I love that. So true. It starts and it ends with self. Always. And that's a beautiful thing. Because if, it's, if it starts and ends with self, and we're choosing not to take responsibility, then we're paralyzing ourselves. The moment you take responsibility and you focus on yourself, which ties into alone time, then everything can change. You are the architect. Yes. Outcome. We can't control outcome, but we can move towards an outcome. And as long as we maintain acceptance of the, pa of the idea that the outcome may change, our priorities may change, we can easily divert. This is not about not committing to something, but it's about committing to it, but having the flexibility of being accepting that your perspective may change. You don't want to stick to something till the end if halfway there you realize there's a better path, a faster path to where you want to go, or a better path, different destination. In a way, it's about having an agile mind and flexible mindset in this yes. way. But how can we be flexible if we are not accepting of the possibility of our minds changing or the priorities shifting? That doesn't mean we don't connect to something and, and commit to something. But it's about not being attached. And I'm not a fan of the word attachment. I told Dr. Gabor, even though it's in his book, I'm not a fan of the word attachment as much as, much as I'm a fan of the word connection. Or really after with attachment is connection. And so connection to me is, uh, is healthy attachment. In, in the words of Dr. Gabor. And that, mm. you know, we had that conversation in the live, on the live. Boundaries. How do we enforce healthy boundaries? How do we establish them? How do we allow ourselves to even create these? I think one way to clarify that is to talk about triggers for a bit. Triggers. So when someone says something to you that bothers you, you have a couple of options. You can either bottle it in, which a lot of people do, which is the most unhealthy thing to do. And most of the other things I'm about to suggest, just for the record, aren't actually healthy either, but that's the worst for yourself. The second is you threaten the person and tell them, if you ever say that again, this is what I'll do or whatever. The third is you cut them out of your life in that moment. The fourth is you basically talk to them and tell them, how you feel about what happened. And the healthy way to do it, language-wise, is when you said that, I felt this. That's a true statement. You made me feel that is not a true statement. And that alone shifts things. Because when I say, when you said that, I felt this, there is no blame, there is no judgment, there is no accusation. Stating a fact. Pure. Stating a fact. This is not about you. This is about me letting you know, just letting you know. Just letting you know is a powerful phrase, by the way, in so many different scenarios. I'm just letting you know. This is how I feel. And suddenly everything shifts. So these are different ways. That was the healthiest way. Having said that, here's the missing piece. What do they all have in common? Reacting to something that someone said. Trigger management. Mm. You're managing the trigger. You're simply managing the trigger. By suppressing 
you're trying to hope that the other person doesn't press the button anymore or press the emotional landmine inside of you again, doesn't step on it again. Two, you threaten them, and so hopefully fear will stop them from pressing it. Three, you tell them how you feel and hoping that that will change, which is the healthiest thing in that scenario, in that set of scenarios or potential options. The fourth is you cut them out of your life. And if you cut them out of your life, you're guaranteed to no longer have that person step on that landmine. But guess what? That's not the only person that lived. You are going to meet someone else. And I guarantee you that's not the first person that stepped on that landmine. And therefore, that's going to happen again. This is why they always say that people have recurring types of relationships mm -hmm. over and over and over again yes. until they learn what they had to learn. That thorn is taken out and next chapter. The solution is to focus on the thorn, as you mentioned. What if we focus on the emotional wound that gave birth to that landmine? When that wound is healed, that landmine no longer exists. You never need to live with the fear of anyone stepping on that landmine. You're never triggered. There is no trigger anymore. That's it. It's gone. Now, why am I mentioning this before boundaries? Because the thing about that is if you are focusing on the trigger, you're always going to be trapped. But if you eliminate the trigger, does that mean you don't enforce your boundaries? I, you said something. Every time you say that word, let's say glass, whatever reason, it could be a negative word or it could be a neutral word. I get triggered. You say glass, I get triggered every single time. The point I'm trying to make is it's more important to focus on healing the emotional wound first before enforcing your boundaries in the right context. Because sometimes in the moment, it's important to enforce the boundaries. Because the faster, you, the sooner you enforce the boundaries, the better. However, the healthiest thing to do in general, heal the emotional wound. By healing the emotional wound, you remove the thorn, you remove the trigger. What ends up happening is next would be the test. And if you say glass and I don't feel anything, do I need to tell you not to ever say it again if it no longer bothers me? If it no longer bothers me, do I need to tell you about the glass? I don't think so. But I have the choice if on an intellectual level, not an emotional level anymore, I have the choice of basically letting you know that I'm not okay with you saying that to me or talking to me in that way. But it doesn't come from emotions. I removed... The point here is when you heal the wounds, you clarify the boundaries for yourself. Because a lot of times what you're calling a boundary is actually just a trigger of something that you wouldn't even use as a boundary if the wound is gone. So in a way, you're saying that sometimes enforcing boundaries without working on the emotional wound itself is taking a little bit of a shortcut. Not just a shortcut, you are enabling yourself to remain trapped because these boundaries are limiting and they're not serving you. You just want to protect yourself from pain and that enables you to keep that wound. Work on the wound first, then enforce your boundaries if you choose to, because it can still be a boundary after you heal the wound. But it's not a boundary because it's a trigger. It's not a boundary because it's, a pa it's pain, painful. It's a boundary because it's inappropriate for you. You don't accept that. Mm -hmm. It violates your, your, your values. You don't accept being spoken to this way. You're not okay with it. Not on an emotional level. You're free from that. And the way you communicate the boundaries will change because it's no longer driven by emotions. So you're not going to say 
the clarification, you're not going to enforce your boundaries with aggression or resentment or anything like that, which makes the other person more accepting of it as well, less threatened as well. It actually, it's great for everybody. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see on the show next. See you next week.